Well, here we are in the second week of January, and New Year's resolutions continue to abound. Some of you may feel you have made your New Year's resolutions and already broken them. Some of you, like me, may be resistors of New Year's resolutions, of that whole industry built around us of the things we have to change, the things we have to make different. Weight, I have read in multiple uh, sources, is always one of the top five resolutions that people make, changing something about their weight. I want to be 10 pounds thinner. I want to exercise for a particular reason. I want to fit into that swimsuit. I, of course, have come to complete and total happiness and acceptance with my body. I'm perfectly comfortable as long as it stays within an approved 11-pound range. It's like speeding. You know, you won't get a ticket unless you go above 11 miles over. And really, if I'm honest, I'd prefer to stay exactly at that initial base speed limit. Isn't that always the way? It is, for me at least, just when I think I have done the work, just when I think I have gotten myself to a space where I've completely and fully realized my worth as a person, where I've come to accept and understand and celebrate my body content in my shape, something changes. A pregnancy or an injury or age. And it turns out that I did it a little wrong. I had only learned to fully realize my worth and be comfortable and accepting in that body, (laughs) that old one. And now here I am in this new one, and it's too different and too outside the approved range in one way or another. And I have to start the work all over again. This is a platform about resistance and bodies. It's not, as some of our children will be learning about this morning, about resistance and friction and bodies in motion. It's not about the scientific principles at play when our bodies pushing against the air and against the ground and against all the particles around them move through space. Some of our children will get to do that in their classes this morning. They have parachutes and and, and, uh, uh, toy cars that they're moving through space as they explore resistance. I suppose you could say that this platform is related to resistance in our fight against gravity, which seems to me to be scientific only in the sense that it is scientifically impossible. Gravity being one of those forces. Our fight against gravity, our fight against time, this is a platform about all the ways that we are told we ought to shape and change and be in our bodies. The way that we want to be in our bodies, about the ways that our bodies are shaped and do change over time, often 
It's a platform, I guess, about knowing when to resist and when to accept. A platform about reality, gravity, and time being key components in that reality. It's not a platform about beauty, really, although certainly that's a piece of it. Beauty being one of the most easily identified ways in our society of marking a body. I've been thinking about this partly, of course, because of Star Wars. I do want to say that this is the second Star Wars reference in the month of January since I saw the movie at the end of December. I can promise you that in two weeks' time, when our platform is about how we are a community of resistance, (laughs) that you'll be hearing a little bit about the force. So it's, uh, (laughs) it's still coming, I promise. We won't end with this. But I've been thinking about Star Wars and about bodies. If you have been tracking Star Wars at all, and these most recent episodes, you remember, were on episode seven. We started in 1977 with episode four, and then five, and then six, and then they did one, two, and three, which probably should just kind of be left to film history. And now we're back at seven with the characters who started in four, right? So here we are 35 years later, and, and, um, and many of the same actors have returned to play their characters over that time. And oh, the internet. <laughs> oh, the commentary. Leia has come back to us. Princess Leia, she is... Uh, not uh, referred to as Princess Leia, and I'll stop there for, um, to avoid spoilers, but, um, but she has, has gone on in her life, and there have been so many comments about Leia and how she has aged. It does happen in 35 years. She's had some good responses, and yet her response is complicated in and of itself as well. One of my favorite quotes from her in her response to all of the commentary about how she had aged was, uh, she wrote on Twitter, um, youth and beauty are not accomplishments, they're the temporary happy byproducts of time and DNA. (laughs) And she went on to talk about how much more she is than how she looks, And yet then, too, Carrie Fisher, the actress who plays Leia, lost weight for the role to be found acceptable to appear in Episode 7. She inhabits so fully, I think, that push and pull between society's expectations of us and our resistance to them. The places that we are able to resist and the places sometimes we are not. Of course, it wasn't actually only Princess Leia who got older in 35 years. It happened actually to all the actors from episode four, you may be surprised to discover. Amazingly, Han Solo and Luke also did age over 35 years. There's another great quote that's going around, and I'm not sure who created it, maybe just the person who put together the little meme, the little picture, but it said it's not that men age better than women, it's that they're allowed to age, that we have some expectation that over 35 years you would look different than you did 35 years previously. I want to note there that that in terms of, of the outward appearance of age, 
in terms of, of beauty and body size and shape, the things that are most readily visible about our bodies to others, I do think that women often carry a greater burden in our society, that they're held more closely to an unreasonable standard, a one-size-fits-all, one expectation for each. But by no means do men escape from the idea of a standard. They, too, are expected to be, you could name it, you could describe it, uh, tall and broad, muscular, but not muscled. You know, that wouldn't be right somehow. It's something in between. White, of course, in American society. Handsome, but not too pretty, really. No, men are not immune. And I note a side note about those of us who identify as transgender or genderqueer or gender fluid. We talked about that in December, about some of those terms. And, and I note the intense added layers of one's insides not matching one's outsides, of experiencing your body as different than you wish it in often deeply painful ways. I think, actually, those of us who are cisgender, remember that's if the body, the the gender that you were identified with at birth is still the gender that you identify with now. Cis is same in Latin, cisgender. Those of us who are cisgender experience that sometimes, and folks who are transgender or genderqueer have it in a much more highly crystallized form. I think... Perhaps those of us who are cisgender can use our own experiences of our body feeling different than we feel inside as a doorway to understanding what that experience might be like. I remember in a pastoral care class many years ago in seminary talking with the teacher, with the professor, about um, different experiences in life and um, worrying, you know, that I wouldn't be able to have the same, to be able to, to to pastor, to counsel someone who had an experience so different than my own. And she said, you know, remember that we all have the same feelings. We experience them in different ways, in completely different situations, in different selves, in different societal structures. But the human feelings, those we share in common. And many of us, I think, have had that human feeling that human feeling of our insides and our outsides feeling somehow at odds, our body not being what we might wish it to be. For some of us, it might be about beauty, about how we look, the shape of our body. For others, it might be about how our body functions, how it works, whether it jumps as high as we would like, whether it can jump at all. I try with my daughters to focus on that kind of physicality. That's what they tell parents to do, you know. Not to talk to your children about their their physical attributes that you can see, not to talk about how they look or their legs or their hair, but instead to talk about their bodies and what they can do. Wow, your body can jump. Your body runs so fast. When you have a cut, your skin can heal itself. Your body can repair itself. Isn't that amazing? But then I wonder, what happens on the times when it can't do those things? 
For me, personally, just as challenging as navigating the shape of my body, how it has changed over time and how I have tried to settle into some measure of comfort with it, just as challenging as that has been work on the ability of my body, the insides, the parts that you can't see so easily. This past Wednesday, it was January 6th, was the 10th anniversary of a surgery that I had. I had a um, a, what's called a desmoid tumor. It's very rare because I'm so special. Um, (laughs) Just wonderful. Uh, One in three million, I think it was, or maybe three in one million, but either way, slightly better than your Powerball odds, I think. (laughs) Not much. It was a tumor in the in my uh, in my shoulder back here and um and it it's called a, an aggressive but benign tumor which meant it wasn't going to spread it wasn't cancer it couldn't go other places in my body but it invaded the tissue around it it, it ate up whatever was around it it was about the size of an egg when they found it um after many months of thinking i had a like tendonitis or something i think so January 6th was the 10th anniversary of that surgery, and after the surgery I had radiation to make sure that it wouldn't come back, and many years of regular MRIs to check. I was on the young side to have an experience like that, but most of us will have something like that at some point in our lives. We'll have a body that, the best word I could use, betrays us, something that grows where we didn't want it, ligaments that give out, joints that wear against each other and must be replaced if we can afford it and we're able to withstand the surgery. A heart that doesn't pump the way it ought to, the way it used to. You might have heard the phrase temporarily abled. It's a catchphrase somewhat within parts of the disability community, but I I think of it just as a statement of reality. The idea that each one of us might be, at any given time, temporarily abled, temporarily having all the parts of our body doing approximately what they are intended to do or supposed to do, at least in our minds, meeting our basic expectations of jumping and skin healing oneself and walking and standing. Many of us have an internal age. I bet if you took a minute, you could think of yours what it might be. Usually it's in the late 20s or up to about mid-30s. Am I right? Are most people about there? I remember actually mine was older than me for quite some time. So there was kind of a weird reverse experience of like, oh, I'll get there one day, but I've passed it now. (laughs) Most of us have that internal age, the set point where we think we've sort of stopped. And then the thing is, Our bodies don't follow that plan. It's very odd. They continue to change and shift, losing ability, sometimes surprisingly early. I've already been told by my doctor when I went in to say it it hurt when I sat cross-legged on the floor with my kids. (laughs) She said, well, first of all, don't do that. That's the solution. (laughs) Don't sit cross-legged. And I said, but that seems so odd. I always could. I'd I'd never had this problem. Should I be doing what's wrong with my knee? And she basically said, you're getting old. (laughs) 
it was a little sooner than I expected, frankly, to get that from a doctor. I don't think it's going to start reversing the frequency. Back to my shoulder, that funny thing. The problem is when they took the tumor out, which I really appreciated, they also removed my whole right rhomboid muscle. That's the thing that keeps your scapula in the right place. So mine kind of wings out, you know. I'd like to say like a fairy or something, but it's only on one side, a little lopsided. That is where the resistance comes in for me, that shoulder. I've had PT many times, physical therapy over the years, and little fits and starts. You know, it turns out they want you to do those exercises at home like every day. That didn't work for me. And I did that physical therapy as I needed it so that I could return to some kind of shape, some kind of uh, normalcy, you know, to get back to where I had been before. I didn't need to be an Olympic kayaker. That dream was actually never really dreamt, but (laughs) also gone. But it turns out when there's a whole muscle removed from your body, it really won't go back to normal quite I remember so distinctly the second or third round of physical therapy when the therapist told me, but you know, you won't be able to get back to the way you were before. You know that, right? It was a mixture of sadness and relief that I felt. To know that that's not what we were shooting for anymore. It wasn't going to ever be quite like that. My body had changed in a way that meant a total return was impossible. It was time to stop resisting that reality. And yet somehow, although I remember that moment with absolute clarity, I managed to forget it time and time again, bringing me through sort of a constant cycle of uh, uh, kind of ignoring the injury, then, uh, then remembering the injury, then using the injury as an excuse to, to do no kind of anything with my upper body, then deciding I really need to get in shape. And, and, uh, and so uh, usually by ignoring the injury, I did that this past July Uh, Actually, it was the last two weeks of July. You might recall I took a sabbatical, May, June, and July. I had three months off. And so in the last two weeks, I thought probably I should look at my body in some way. That would, I had a little time left, so that would be enough. (laughs) Just the two weeks. And, um, and so, uh, so I started exercising every morning, which was, which was great, actually. I loved it. I got up. I did uh, the little, the scientific seven-minute workout. Have you seen this from the New York Times? There's an app for your phone. And I thought that would be perfect. And so I did seven minutes of this workout every morning. And by mid-August, <laughs> by mid-August, the pain in my shoulder was so bad that I was scheduling an MRI to see if the tumor had come back. I thought they told me that it wouldn't, but at this point, maybe it's there. It hasn't been this bad for so long. And so I got an MRI, and then they didn't get the right MRI to get a second MRI. It was awful. All of the waiting to find out, you know, if it would have returned. I went in to get the results. I think that the doctor didn't really understand how nervous I was because he started with a part of the report from the MRI that was totally relevant. And finally, he looked at me and he said, oh, oh, the tumor's not back. (laughs) Okay. 
And so we tried to figure out why I might be experiencing this pain, and I said, well, you know, I have been trying to exercise more, so I've been doing a bunch of push-ups in the morning. (laughs) I forgot. He said, well, actually, you know, you're not really able for the rest of your life to lift your right arm above your shoulder, just so you know. I thought, oh, right. I remember that. (laughs) It seems sometimes that we spend a life with our bodies in a dance back and forth, ignoring the reality until it bites us back and reminds us that it's there. Certainly, that's true for me. Working to improve the musculature's movement within the limits of reality to resist the atrophy of the muscles that are still there, to resist the overwork of the surrounding muscles, the tightening up as they try to do some other muscle's job, to figure out how to make a changed and restructured body work as well as possible. Perhaps you have parts of your body that offer a similar challenge. If you don't now, you will. (laughs) It's true. You will. That aching knee, the back that spasms when you hike up an incline, a lifelong struggle to figure out where in reality we try to sit where we resist and push and seek to improve, and where we acknowledge and accept. I was thinking about that this morning. Now, after this, there's no secrets between us, guys. I was thinking about it this morning as I plucked out that one stray hair on my chin that grows back over and over again. Don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay? It's getting real. As I plucked it out (laughs) this morning, I thought about the Sikh tradition. It's the fifth largest religion globally, you know, Sikhism. And within Sikh, one of the practices is called Kesh, K-E-S-H. It's allowing one's hair to grow without ever cutting it to signify the perfection of God's creation. Never cutting it. You might remember a story a couple of years ago now about a young Sikh woman who um, had facial hair. She was not gender queer. She was not transgender. She was a cisgender woman who identified as a woman and had facial hair. And of course, in kind of Western American society, she would have employed any manner of waxes and razors and electrolysis so that you wouldn't see that. But she was Sikh and practiced Kesh, and so she didn't cut a hair on her body to signify the perfection of God's creation. Her story kind of came to national attention because uh, an ungracious person took a picture of her and posted it on, uh, online on some site I don't really know well that seems to be where you post things to make fun of people, so I'm not on that. But... Um, but posted it with comments about how weird she looked. And, 
And, uh, and this young woman took the opportunity and turned it around, uh, and, and posted it back and went all, it kind of went viral, her conversation about her religious practice and Sikhism and what it meant to her, why she chose to practice Kesh, what it meant about her experience of her body, her connection with God and with the universe and the world. I thought of that this morning as I plucked out that hair for about the 20,000th time. That one stray hair, which was in all probability noticeable only to me. Don't burst my bubble and say it isn't. (laughs) And I thought, what would my body be like? And more importantly, what would my interaction with my body be like if I believed what she does? If I believed that every hair on my body was a symbol of perfection. One of the focus goals created by the board, staff, lay leader retreat this past February, so almost a year ago now, was, and I'm going to quote it exactly, to explore the ethical culture approach to our bodies as part of our whole selves. Our focus goals are 12 to 18-month goals, and we're supposed to kind of work on them and align programming toward them over that time period. And so I do regular reports to the board to let them know how we're doing on all of those goals. And in my last report, I got to that goal, and I had pretty much uh, a blank. (laughs) And I thought about it a little bit more, and I'm sure there's many reasons why that was. We've been busy and done other things, and, and there were a lot of, there were 18 focus goals, I think. So that was maybe a lot of focus goals. But But, you know, I think one reason we haven't made progress is that there isn't much of an ethical culture approach to bodies, at least as far as I know. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, used to take walks in the summertime uh, up in the Hudson Valley where he had a summer place. So we talk about that a lot. Um, The founder took hikes. (laughs) That's kind of what we have. It's a pretty heady tradition, ethical culture, or has been. We are still, in fact, remembering that we have bodies, that we are whole beings. And so there is, I guess, an opportunity to be builders of that. We do have, you know, OWL, Our Whole Lives. That's our comprehensive sexuality education program, which we offer in the 7th and 8th grade year, and now also in the kindergarten and first year, and in the 4th and 6th year, thanks to some extremely dedicated teachers, many of whom are in the room right now. We'll be offering, actually, an introductory session, and then, if there's interest, a longer session for adults of that program, Comprehensive Sexuality Education for Adults, starting in February, so keep your eye out for that. That's one of the places where we do look at our embodiedness, our bodies, the idea that sexuality is a a part of being human, a part of an embodied, lived experience of humanity. One of the things I love about ethical culture is our acceptance of, our insistence on the fullness of reality. You see this sometimes in our memorial services. When we, when we try to remember not just the perfect things about the person, but the truth about the person, the wholeness, you know, of who they were, of their human experience. We, we have, I think, an ability to look reality in the eye, to notice 
about ourselves, not just our wonderful thoughts and actions, but all of them, to see each other really fully as complete human beings, to learn about each other, to be curious as we learn. There's no original sin here that has to be gotten rid of, but rather inclusion, acceptance, a welcome of people as they are. And then, of course, seeking to bring out the best in that other person and therefore in ourselves, to do that in relationship with each other through trial and error. And so I wonder what that would look like if the other was our body. I do know, by the way, that our bodies are actually a part of, I know it's all one thing, you know. But just stay with me. Imagine if the other were your body. What would it look like to see our bodies fully, to acknowledge and accept them as they are, to radically include and welcome them? And also in that doing to seek to bring out their best. It might look and feel different for each of us what our body's best is. I imagine it would. Sometimes here we talk about not just the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but the platinum rule, find out what they'd like done, (laughs) and then do that. (laughs) What would happen if we listened to our bodies? To what made them feel good or feel hurt? And then to allow them to be fully what they are. In our care, to invite them to tell us what they needed. Invite them to be stronger if they liked or more relaxed if that's what they needed. There is in that, I think, a positive resistance of the cultural messages of perfection without the false, impossible resistance of reality. One of the things that I do for my shoulder is see a massage therapist once a month, and uh, she works through all of those other muscles around the missing muscle to try to get them to chill out a little bit. (laughs) And often when I see her, she'll ask me how I'm taking care of my shoulder. She'll say, you know, you should baby it a little bit. Maybe put a hot water bottle on it. Wouldn't that feel nice, she asks me. You could sit in bed with a hot water bottle on it in the evening. And every time she says it, it's like a revelation. Oh, that would feel nice. And then I remember that the last time she said it, I actually went and got one of those shoulder wraps that you can put in the microwave, and it's just in the bottom of my cabinet, and I haven't gotten it out since three days after the last time I saw her. And she told me, Hey, why don't you baby your shoulder a little bit? And I, and I remember that yes, I want to strengthen the muscles around that lost muscle. And yes, I want to have a shoulder that does all it's able to do. But I also want to love and notice and care for the shoulder I do have. The one that's there in my body. Free of rhomboid muscles. (laughs) Present. There's a Denise Levertov poem that I just love. It's about grief, actually, and it starts, Ah, grief, I should not treat you like a homeless dog who comes to the back door for a crust, for a meatless bone, I should trust you. I wonder if we substituted body for that word grief, 
How could we come to a place where, as Levertov concludes in her poem, we treat our bodies like my own dog? The one I love and care for, that animal nature of ourselves, the animal beings of us. How do we afford our bodies love and warmth and care, even in the reality of the disappointment we may sometimes draw from them? I would like to reach over my head to get to a pot, <laughs> but my body won't do that anymore. Can I love it anyway? Does it deserve a warm shoulder wrap? I suspect I will be in a lifelong learning about my body. Perhaps all of us will be, since our bodies do have that habit of changing over time, of aging, since time is, in fact, impossible to resist. And I wonder if we can instead transform our resistance into love, into acceptance, and from there into courage and strength for the journey ahead. The journey in which our body changes, I promise. In which parts of it fail, I promise that too. And can be replaced or not. In which our body's abilities shift and alter sometimes growing stronger and more able, sometimes growing less able, the journey that we take with this animal self of ours, nurturing us and being nurtured by us. I wonder if we can love it as it is, bring out its best, and listen carefully for how that best changes over time. I wonder if we can invite our bodies to be part of the ethical culture that we create.